Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the the different perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to the program. I'm going to be joined today by Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. We're going to be talking about the Socorro UFO incident of 1964. Ben Moss is MUFON's chief field investigator in Virginia, and he's a member of their Rapid Deployment STAR team, STAR standing for Strike Team Area Research. He is a guest expert on the History's Hangar 1 TV show and has written numerous articles for the MUFON UFO Journal and various online websites. He has appeared on Paranormal TV. Ben has been with MUFON since the 1990s. He is a member, uh, he is a MUFON investigator, I should say. Ben has also studied such disciplines as history, archaeology, physics, astronomy, religion, and many other sciences required to investigate such, a, such an elusive topic as UFOs. Tony has been studying UFOs since the early 90s. He, is, uh, he became an investigator while living in Virginia in 1999. A computer network, uh, I'm sorry, he is a computer network administrator by profession. Tony gives spare time to studying and researching UFO cases. As an assistant state director and star team member, Tony works closely with experts in the field to gain further knowledge on by using the current technology to further the field of ufology in a scientific way. He's been studying radiation, electromagnetic fields, general physics, and string theory, and are, are as a few topics that he's interested in. Tony is also an avid scuba diver and hopes to discover some kind of trace evidence left behind by anomalous craft seen underwater. He is also a public speaker and appears in the second season of Hangar One. Sorry for botching that so much, guys, but it gets you introduced here. So I am uh, now going to turn this over more or less to Ben um, so you get to hear what his voice sounds like. Ben, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And Tony, you're there as well. I'm here. Thanks for having okay. us. Okay. We got it going even though I've stumbled through the introduction. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Socorro UFO crash, the UFO crash, UFO incident of 1964 with Lonnie Zamora. Um, ben, you want to give us just a quick rundown of what happened there? I've got just a few minutes left here. Sure. On uh, April 24th, 1964, Lonnie Zamora was on a uh, random patrol, um, started chasing a speeder. Then as he was chasing the speeder, he saw an object, uh, a kind of a flame, a blue flame cross over the highway and go off into the uh, into the desert, so to speak, and followed that. When he got near uh, this hill he was going to crest, he saw two small uh, things in white coveralls next to a, a white craft. He thought it was an overturned car, but when he crested the hill, 
he basically saw a landed uh, egg-shaped UFO with a symbol on it, and uh, that was uh, when the whole thing began. So he uh, chased a speeder out of basically out of town to the outskirts of town, saw something landed on the ground, saw two creatures outside the craft. They returned to the craft, and it took off. Um, Zomora was a single witness to this event. Uh, there were actually multiple witnesses. Um, there was a car that stopped at Opal Grinders uh, station, uh, gas station, and said, and this was right before Lonnie started chasing it, said that the thing had almost knocked their car off the road, said it was a funny-looking vehicle, and um, and then they saw Lonnie in pursuit of the vehicle, so they had just mentioned it was uh, two parents and three children in a car. And then there was a Larry Kratzer and another gentleman driving away who Paul saw Keyes. Paul Keyes, who mm-hmm. saw the departure of the craft also. And we also found out that the policemen, um, all of the policemen confided among themselves that they had seen the object, and Sergeant Chavez most likely saw the object departing. He got there before it completely departed. So that would be new news because we've all heard about the Lonnie Zamora case. It's basically single witness. The uh, tourists at Opal Grinders Place really don't count because we don't know who they are. That's secondhand testimony. But now we've got information that you guys have dig- dug up that suggests that police officers also saw this object. Yeah, um, not only did they see it uh, in the sky, but after the event, uh, many of the police officers saw it land again as well. And they also. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, near the canal. And they refused to ever report it again because of the way Lonnie was treated. They hated the Air Force. Uh, After the event, uh, Hynek and uh, the Air Force came back to interview Lonnie behind closed doors numerous times. We're going to take a quick break here. We will be right back to talk about this aspect of the case because this becomes new, valuable information. We will return in just a few moments. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. Shamanism is recognized as a method to access the quantum level. Mastery of shamanic skills puts spiritual information and healing power into your hands. 
Path Home Shamanic Art School, a bonded Colorado certified occupational school, has met rigorous state standards ensuring its director and instructors have the qualifications to teach the shamanic arts. Path Home offers its certification program in blocks of study. Block 1, a five-day intensive, will be held in the beautiful mountain town of Coldale, Colorado, October 13th through 18th. Registration deadline is September 12th. Experience journey trance, power animals, helping spirits, sacred space, and life purpose. Come discover your power. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, in the magical world of shamanism. Call 303-775-3431 or visit findyourpathhome.com. And we are back with Ben Moss and Tony Angiola talking about the Socorro landing of 1964. And before we took the break, they were talking about police officers who had also seen the object, which is fairly new information because it had always been suggested that only Lonnie Zamora had seen this. And they have now suggested that police officers, police officers, other police officers with the New Mexico State Police or the Socorro local police saw the UFO. Uh, did you talk to these police officers yourselves? Well, uh, one of the things that I just wanted to finish my thought on was okay. that Mike Martinez, Mike Martinez was the radio dispatcher, and he was quoted as saying that the, the, this is the reason why we don't tell anyone when we see these things flying in the sky or landing, and that goes for the entire police department. You know, they, these were events that took place after the event. Um, now, most of these people have passed away. Lonnie passed away in 2009. Yeah. Um, his wife is still alive. Um, and we were trying to find, when we, when we were uh, visiting Socorro, we had a hard time finding anybody who was still alive that could talk to us. Um, we recently learned that um, Jose Padilla, I think, is still alive, and Paula Harris was talking to us about him. So we're hoping to possibly interview him next year. But when you say other police officers saw this, this is information you got secondhand from family members or friends as opposed to the police officers themselves? It was from uh, Ray Stanford, the original NICAP investigator. They liked Ray on site. Uh, Chavez did not like him. but um, Well, Chavez didn't like anybody. Yeah, Chavez didn't like anybody. But Ray lives about 40 miles from our home, and he told us that all the police officers confided that there were multiple sightings that the police officers had seen. There was a landing near the canal, but they would never, ever speak about it because of the way Lonnie was treated. So it's it's secondhand from Ray, who was on the site. And I, we believe Ray's telling us the truth because there's no reason to make it up. But there were other auditory witnesses. Now we found in the old APRO Carol Lorenzo report that uh, there was a, a pilot that said he saw it with the symbol um, so we found, I'm going through, we're going through these old APRO and NICAT documents. There were like 10 egg-shaped crafts sighted within two weeks of each other before and after this event. Not to mention, we also recently learned about a beer truck driver who was also in the area. And uh, Ray was contacted uh, recently by somebody uh, that's, I think, related to the beer truck driver, we talked about this event, and we're trying to uh, confirm the story by anyone who's left living uh, related to the beer truck driver as well as the company that he drove for that was sold to the Coors Company, and they allegedly actually delivered beer to a party in the early 1970s. And it's a little bit of, a, a little bit of uh, detective work there, but we're hopefully going to dig up a little bit more evidence on this soon. Well, just so we're clear on this, uh, you got the information about the police officers seeing the objects in the in the area in that time frame from Ray Stanford. Did he record any yeah. of those conversations? No, he he would take copious notes after something happened, and a lot of the if you look in his books, of course, also under Pentagon Pantry. I mean, the detail is unbelievable, and he always wrote things down. Um, he, you know, he he made it clear uh, Chavez uh, told another officer that told Ray that said, I saw the thing moving away at the time. I'm just not going to tell anybody about it because, um, you know, Lonnie being a nice guy and being treated so badly. And even Lieutenant Holder was wondering why the joint chiefs of staff kept, you know, calling and setting up meetings. Um, and, uh, you know, he also later admitted that he had changed the symbol. We found some documents on that um, just so that if somebody reported it, and they reported the symbol they made up that he'd know they were lying. Well, we've got 
I think in the, the UFO literature, we've got two symbols that have been shown. One is uh, more of an arrow shape with lines through it, and one is sort of an umbrella over that. And and is one of those the correct symbol now, or is is, is there a third symbol that we'd be talking about? Basically, it's the inverted V with three bars through it, and it's been contested for some time, but since we recently got uh, Project Blue Book documents from Rob Mercer, we found various notes uh, from Hynek from the Air Force where they documented the inverted V with three bars across it. Um, even Hynek, we have a letter directly written from Hynek that shows him drawing it that way as well. In the National Archives. And it's also in the National Archives. So it's, it was very clear that, uh, and also when you listen to uh, Lonnie Zamora's audio testimony in contrast to Hynex, because of the timing, you see that Lonnie just wasn't allowed to talk about it, even though Walter Schrode, who interviewed him from KSRC Radio, already knew, like everyone else in town, that it was an inverted V with three bars through it, because the first thing Lonnie did on the radio in Spanish is he conveyed the description of what he saw. And he was very close to the craft with his glasses on, no more than 35 feet away. And so he wrote, he drew it, he, he had his glasses on, he conveyed it in Spanish. Everyone in town knew it was an inverted V with three bars through it until the Air Force showed up. And deep into the night, around 1 o'clock in the morning, is when they were saying, this is the drawing that we're going to talk about. And they forced Lonnie to sign the drawing that someone else drew. And if you look carefully, you'll see the writing, the handwriting is not Lonnie's handwriting, only the signature and the drawing was not done by Lonnie either. I was going to point out that in the Project Blue Book files, there is a drawing that was made that Lonnie Zamora did sign. So you're saying that that drawing That's is inaccurate, that the Air Force forced him to do that. Yeah. He was forced to sign that one. And if you look deeper into the Project Blue Book files from the various memos, you'll find an inverted V with three bars through it in various instances, as well as a, a letter written from Hynek uh, to the Air Force with uh, the correct symbol. Yeah, one of the strongest documentations for that is, first of all, there were four separate newspapers before Ray ever got there that reported an inverted V with three bars. Then the um, the Blue Book files showed that. And then when Hynek and Schrode, uh, Walter Schrode was doing the interview like a day or two after the incident, he interviewed Heineck first and asked about the symbol of Heineck, and we have all this in our presentation on audio. He said, I see no reason why I can't talk about it. It was like an inverted V with like a bar through it, and he, he drew it with three bars through it, but it reminded him of a cattle brand. And then when Lonnie got out of the closed-door room and Walter Schrode said, can you tell us about the symbol, Lonnie said, no, I've been told not to talk about that. And that's because at that point they had changed the symbol to this circle with the arrow the mushroom thing, the mushroom thing. and you know i always thought that and ray kind of agreed that the symbol could be you know an indication the v could be where the thruster is located the three bars could be a danger you know radiation don't stand here type thing or it could simply be like an american flag or yeah somewhere else it's all conjecture yeah. but we firmly believe with all the evidence we have that it was an inverted v with three bars well that's interesting because of what we've been told in the past or what's been shown in the past. The other interesting thing is he saw two alien creatures, two beings near the, near the craft. Uh, did you ever find a good description of what those creatures looked like? Well, they were, they stood no more than around four feet. They're like the size of a 10 year old child. And he never said that they were people. He never said that they were aliens. He was trying to be very careful in the words that he chose that's why he said that they were two uh, things in white coveralls. And he, he tried to stick to it as much as possible. As time went on and people would, would talk to him and interview him, they always kept saying, you know, their own, giving their own words, their own descriptions, trying to use the word children, trying to use the word people, trying to use the word aliens. And Lonnie, you know, if you look at the original report, he just said two things in white coveralls. Yeah, another part, the, the Air Force report, the Blue Book report, neglected, because Lonnie stopped talking about the two things, and he also, they didn't report in their official report about that. They didn't report that Lonnie had hit the dirt when the thing started roaring. There's a lot of things admitted from the actual Blue Book report. But since we have the internal documents, 
we know how confused they were and where they checked and how they they could not find anybody on earth that made the vehicle. Oh, they, they misspelled so many words and yeah, that was not, not to penetrate their grammar, uh, but it was pretty bad. It was yeah, there was uh, a but, lot of but moving notes moving that we had. moving back, did he give a description of the things other than they looked uh, the, the size of a ten year old child? Did he did he say anything about skin tones? Did he say anything about uh, uh, facial features or anything like that? No, he was 150 feet away when he spotted the two beings. When he got as close as 50 feet away, his report was that he heard like a door slamming, like, you know, kind of like a tank, like a, like a door just shutting. Double, and double slam. Like a double slam. So, yeah, he witnessed these two, two uh, things at 150 feet away. And then at a fifty at fifty feet away is when he could hear the doors slamming. So they were already inside the craft at that point. It's just white coveralls was all he could describe. But they were standing next to a creosote bush that was five feet tall, and they didn't come up to the top of that bush. So the the bush was measured sometime after, obviously after the uh, event took place. Somebody measured the the size of the bush. Yeah, they they did everything. They they there was actually some depression analysis that didn't show up in the report. They triangulated the four landing spots, they walked off, Ray walked off to, uh, exactly, they parked exactly where Lonnie's car wa- was, and that's how they walked off and knew that Lonnie was 35 feet from the vehicle when he saw the symbol. And then he ran into the car and his sunglasses fell off. And so it's just like uh, kind of on the, you know, the blogs that we've seen where people who haven't done their homework keep saying things that are not what really happened, you know? So it's, it's good to be able to clarify that um, exactly as it happened from the original investigator, the Blue Book Files. We, we copied every single newspaper article from uh, Albuquerque and Socorro at that time. Um, there were many other incidents involving the same type of craft. So, and I think these things were flying around a lot because the other piece is that Ray does have a picture taken 120 days later that does show several of these objects in the background of the picture. And that's a whole other discussion. So you have a, 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 I guess, a scrapbook. You have a file filled with the newspaper articles that mention, A, the symbol, uh, prior to it being changed to what we all have seen today. And then you have descriptions of similar craft made by other people in the days that followed the sighting. Yeah, including the New Mexico State Police, besides the Coral Police, and also an airplane pilot. And there were several incidents. If you look at the timeline in 1964, this thing followed a pretty straight line where you had, I believe, 10 incidents. And that was what, um, you know, the original investigators found. And the Albuquerque newspaper, the Sequoia newspaper, and two other newspapers all reported that the symbols like days after the incident, way before Ray got there. Because a lot of people think Ray made this symbol up, which is not true at all. What's interesting also is that before this event actually officially took place, starting around 5 p.m., there were phone calls coming in to uh, the radio dispatch at the police station describing this egg-shaped or ellipsoidal craft flying slowly towards the coro. By 5.30, they had three confirmed phone calls just from three different people that had no knowledge of what was going on. They saw a blue flame, they described the craft. Because this actually didn't hit the airwaves officially until um, after six o'clock. But uh, and this is logged in the police records. Uh, well, no. Martinez said, "Yeah, it was in the paper." He said, and it was in the NICAP investigation. He said, before Lonnie even got back to the uh, station, he'd already got three independent calls from three different people saying they saw the blue flame and some type of object heading towards the coral. Okay. Uh, when we come back, I want to explore the two fellows from Dubuque, Iowa that you mentioned earlier, whose names escape me at the moment, um, about what the, whether they were credible sight, uh, witnesses and whether or not you actually found them to talk to. And we will uh, look at some of the skeptical arguments for this, including Phil Class's claim that it was a hoax perpetrated, perpetrated by the mayor of this town to create a tourist spot. So we'll look at all of that when we come back. And if you want more information about some of this material we're talking about, you can take a look at the government UFO files, which is my book that explores a lot of the UFO stuff. Or you can visit uh, the website of uh, Ben Moss and Tony Angiola at www.mufonvirginia.com, I believe. If I'm wrong, they'll let me know. We'll be back in just... 
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. back with Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, uh, both MUFON investigators, both from Virginia. Uh, you guys' website is uh, www.mufonva.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so you can, you can look, uh, look some of this stuff up on their website, take a look at that, see what they have to say. Uh, when we went away, I was uh, interested in whether or not... Uh, some of this information had been documented prior to uh, Ray Stanford and some of the investigations going on, some of the, the um, information that had been, been put out. The one thing that was interesting to me or interested me was the idea that the, there had been phone calls into the police station prior to Lonnie Zamora's sighting. And uh, 
I guess the question that we I asked that it sort of got lost was, uh, was any of this documented in the police logs or the uh, police files? Yeah, the calls were. Um, that's how, how Ray learned about them from Mike Martinez, who was a radio dispatcher who was taking the calls. So there were phone. There, there, there is a, a documented evidence there in the Socorro Police Department that shows phone calls about this object prior to uh, Lonnie Zamora. Uh, to my knowledge, yeah. Okay. We don't we uh, have those documents. Though. Pardon me. We don't have those documents, however. Okay. Uh, there was also something else that, that struck me. Uh, Paul uh, Keys and Larry Kratzberg. Kratzberg. Kratz. Kratzberg. Yeah. Yeah. They were traveling. They were traveling north uh, through Socorro at the time, and when this vehicle was leaving. Uh, they said they described seeing smoke and a blue flame and this this white ellipsoidal object uh, crossing the road that they were on. What they thought was smoke was really dust because the the blue flame was not your typical flame. It was uh, it was more of a subatomic particle that knifed into the ground that sliced the creosote bush in half, and it blew all kinds of sand and dust out of the way. That at a distance, that sand and dust would look like smoke when in fact it was not. Now Larry um, Kratzer and Paul Keyes, uh, their initial testimony was very credible and they described what they saw. Uh, there was some uh, you know, uh, argument later on that they were describing things during interviews that they could not have possibly seen and it almost was like they were placing themselves at ground zero when it's quite possible that maybe they got caught up a little bit in the news of the day or that people were putting words in their mouths, I don't know. But we were focused more on their initial report, which everything seemed to line up. Did you uh, talk to either one of them? No, we weren't able to track them down. Well, I will confess I've tried to find them as well and have failed. They were from uh, Dubuque, Iowa, originally, and their, I think their original story appeared in the Dubuque newspaper, the Telegraph Herald, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with a fellow named Ralph DeGraw? Uh, ben says he's heard the name, but I haven't. Uh, DeGraw interviewed those guys in the uh, in the aftermath of this. I'm not sure how how late it was, how much further. Uh, but he said he found discrepancies in what they had to say and that when you listen to the stories and he's talking about his interviews with them personally, that uh, some of the things seem to be contradictory. But you're unfamiliar with that? Well, that's what I'm saying is that when they were interviewed subsequently, you know, several different times, I think that they were getting caught up in the moment of the notoriety of it, and they were picking up things from the news reports as to what happened, and they were making statements that perhaps maybe they shouldn't have. But more or less, the the initial report that that they were talking about what they saw at a distance and what they saw fly over the road was very consistent in the correct timing. Uh, according to Lonnie Zamora, as to when the crap was leaving, and it all lined up well. So yeah. what took place in those interviews later on with those two guys, I can't say. Yeah, they they had different, I mean, they had the event time right, but they did say conflicting things about what they saw on the shape. So, when, um, when you talk about their where, initial initial interviews, are you talking about the one that appeared in the uh, Dubuque newspaper? Uh, yeah, the initial interview, I think they gave two different descriptions. Um, each one saw kind of a different shape. Um, and then I know as time passed on, they, they definitely got embellished, it sounds like. So it's tough to know if... if if they just kind of got in on it, um, Ray seems to think they have some credibility about, you know, they had the time right and everything. They were in the right place at the right time, uh, if you look at an overhead view of the whole thing. But whether they embellished later on or embellished the whole thing, it's really, you know, we can't talk to them directly. It's really hard to, to kind of figure that out. So we're working off the uh, report in the newspaper and then other subsequent uh, interviews they had provided later to other individuals? Yeah, I, I think um, the one thing that came out when we started really digging was the fact that there were so many independent events of an elongated, because even Lonnie said it wasn't egg shape, it was more of a elongated football shape. But the, there's like 10 different things on a straight line um, 
about this event. And one thing that's interesting is when we were speaking at the symposium two weeks ago about this case, there was a gentleman that ran into Lonnie Zamora, and um, this guy worked with radiation, and Lonnie was asking him if he thinks he got radiated. The guy didn't know anything about the case, didn't know anything about Lonnie Zamora. But then the gentleman who worked at White Sands drove out to the mountains where this thing left to and found out that the entire area is Air, Air Force or Army property, and it's a secure area, and nobody's allowed to go there or even talk about it. But the, the landing site is actually on the outskirts of Socorro, and it's uh, private property. It doesn't belong to the military or the government. Yeah, I'm talking about where the craft disappeared to. By the Perlite Pearl, okay. Mill. Yeah. Okay. We got permission. We, we got permission to be on the property when we were there. And even the, the editor of the El Defensor Chieftain had a hard time finding it. But um, it's, it's still there. There were still rocks around where the imprints were. Well, that, that kind of moves us to the, the, the next question is, of course, our pal Philip Glass, the great UFO skeptic and debunker, uh, said that this was a hoax created by the mayor at the time who owned the property and was interested in creating a, a UFO tourist attraction to draw people into the, um, into the area and would make him some money as well. Uh, any truth to that rumor? No, that's, that's <laughs> never happened. Um, if you ever go out there today, you'll be lucky if you can find exactly where it landed. You'll need some help getting getting to the exact spot. But they did erect one small uh, uh, tribute to Lonnie, which has got tumbleweeds covering it. It's not well maintained. Um, There's and, no signs to the landing site. Right. And the mayor did not own that property. The property was uh, not, you know, class in his usual way, I think, just made all that up because um, – Nobody ever made a dime off of it. It made most of these guys miserable. Lonnie said he was sorry he talked about it. Chavez said he was sorry he heard about it. They were all sorry that they brought that they reported it. So it ruined Lonnie's life to the point that he quit being a police officer and just uh, tended to a gas station for the rest of his life. So class didn't have any evidence that the mayor owned the property, and uh, the yeah. idea that it would become a tourist attraction is just. Uh, which has been reported in, in the last uh, 50 years repeatedly, that that information is just completely and totally inaccurate. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. It's like when people say that Lonnie said he saw people. That never was said. And the tourist attraction thing, just like the, uh, the letter of the college hoaxers, was something that was said with absolutely no proof. And that's what people remember. It's just like, as you know, with Roswell. They go, oh, yeah, that balloon that's all on the sky. You know, Kevin, the best evidence... Uh, to, to thwart that theory is the fact that Socorro is constantly overlooked. When I hear about the top 10 cases in the United States, Socorro is always overlooked, and it's one of the most documented, best cases in UFO history. Well, I think the problem there is that what you're dealing with is a case that everybody perceives as single witness. It's Lonnie Zamora's single witness case. And if you can bring other witnesses in who clearly were involved prior to all the, the publicity, meaning simply that we're not talking to people who are attempting to plug themselves into the cases we get with Roswell, uh, then, you've, then you've got something important there, uh, especially if you can document it. And that was why I asked about the police reports and if, there were, if, if that would have been documented, because you can look at that and you say, well, here these people are reporting a similar object in the same time frame that is not really uh, directly linked to Lonnie Zamora's uh, reports. So, I mean, that's important information to have. And then we have to deal with the debunkers, such as Philip Class, who, uh, and I was aware a number of years ago, in fact, at my blog, which is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which I plug my blog now, uh, we talked about this idea, and a reporter for the Defensor Chieftain had written an article a number of years ago, and he explored this idea that the mayor had owned the land, and... Um, provided the, the documentation that suggests they, that he hadn't. And I actually called the reporter and, and talked to him. About it. And I said I was about the only person that had ever asked him about this article that appeared uh, on one of the anniversaries of the sighting. So I, I knew that Philip Class, his information was wrong. Class also had a witness who said that he was uh, at his house, which is not far from the site, and he didn't hear a thing or see a thing. And, uh, uh, did you explore that avenue as well, yeah. this, this witness that Philip Class yeah, that talked guy. about? Yeah, first of all, that witness that said he didn't hear or see anything, he, first of all, he's deaf. 
<laughs> and second of all, he, his house is in, a, is in a depression. And if you know anything about sound waves, if you live in a depression, you're just like on a highway. If you live against uh, the highway and they put those barrier walls up to, to denton the sound, sound waves bounce off of it and over, you know, depression. So his house is located in a perfect spot where such a sound wave would for one bounce over it. Number two, the guy's deaf. Yeah, and this was in a this is a gully. This is probably one of the few places out there where you could land and not be seen from the ridge line. But the ridge line is far away. So when people start talking about hoaxes, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. There were no footprints. There, you know, it's just the hoaxes. We didn't even spend much time on because it's very easy to disprove that. Another thing that we uncovered was there was two other sightings in May at Hollerman Air Force Bay of a landing on their range. And so um, that's just two of the ten that we found where they had visual confirmation by radar. The guy said that they were football-shaped, brown in color, but this was at night, but football-shaped, and they were flying at a low altitude. So that's kind of interesting that we uncovered a landing at Hollerman that was buried, and um, that was in a 1964 July uh, APRO bulletin when they were investigating the case. Plus, one thing I want to make sure that people understand about this case, Kevin, is that it's, it's kind of, it's like a perfect case in a way because there are multiple witnesses. There was metal scrapes from the landing pad left on a rock. It broke a rock. It left four, four indentions, not to mention... Uh, ladder imprints twice because the ladder moved as these entities were, were coming down it and footprints. Not only that, but the, the bush that was sliced in half, the, radi the radiation of the film that was taken from Ted Jordan by the Air Force that they did not give it back. And then luckily, 120 days later, Ray has a photograph that shows exactly what landed. Yeah, the, uh, we have, uh, Ray has a film that we're not allowed to show. Um, but it does show um, uh, Dr. Heine confirming that the film was indeed fogged by radiation. Okay, well, we've got to take another quick break here. So when we come back, we'll kind of wrap up our discussion on what was going on in Socorro and what the evidence uh, shows us today. And uh, for those of you who are interested um, in the Roswell case, which they was mentioned briefly, please take a look at my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, which is available on uh, Amazon.com and in your local bookstores. And I have done some things with the uh, case on my uh, blog at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And you can take a look in there just by typing Lonnie Zamora into the search engine or something of that nature. We'll be back uh, in just a few minutes right after this. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. 
Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming, 24-7, 365. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. Genex provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life is no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. And we are back with Ben Moss from uh, MUFON and Tony Angiola, also from MUFON, talking about the Lonnie Zamora case. When we went away to break, we were kind of talking about uh, the craft and what it looked like and landings in other places. And when uh, 
we got back here, I thought we'd talk about uh, Hector Quintanilla, who was the chief of Project Blue Book. And he did some investigating into trying to find the craft because he was convinced it was some kind of a secret project. Yeah, um, what's interesting is even Captain Holder wondered why the Joint Chiefs and Staffs kept reaching out to him. And Hector, you know, he had Cap- his Captain mind. Captain Holder said, being an uh, Air Force officer from Holloman? Yeah, he yeah, he lived nearby, so he was on site pretty yeah, He was the up-range uh, commander at, at White at I mean, White, White Sands. So he knew things that were flying around the time. And, and we have a clip of him saying 15 years later that he still didn't know what he saw. But... Uh, Hector Quintanilla, you know, was sure that this was in a, a hangar on Hollerman. So he got a top-secret clearance, and, you know, the people that were telling him to ask these questions were the FBI, the CIA, the White House, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all people that you would have to answer to. So he went to every hangar out at Hollerman and White Sands. He had full access to everything. We have the document shown. We'll, we'll give him full access for your, you know, your uh, directive. And this is the case that actually, you know, to this day, there was a private memo he had sent to the FBI that was uh, a FOIA request, got out in 85, where he said, you know, I still don't know what the heck that thing was, and I'm so upset I never found out. It's also the one case that pushed Heineck over the edge and helped him form PUFOs to start his own investigations. But the, the documentation shows that it's still an unknown today. Nobody could find any company... Bell Labs, Hugh Aircraft, uh, White Sands, or anybody that built this thing. Plus, there was nothing flying in that area at that time. So what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is the Blue Book conclusion, the official investigation, even though there may have been other investigations that were classified and were unaware of, but the official investigation by the Air Force concluded that this is an unknown. They don't know what Lonnie Zamora saw. Yeah, it's one of the 701 unknowns that, that, that were in their files. And this case includes uh, landing traces, which it, you, I think you mentioned the uh, foot pads of the craft that uh, touched down, making impressions in the sand. It set one of the bushes on fire. It's uh, one of the few cases where you've got occupants seen that the Air Force is not labeled as a psychological problem. You've got a, a good description from a police officer, and now you're talking about multiple witnesses. So it's a very solid case. Right. And also, let's not forget the metal samples that, that, that was taken off the landing pads that broke a rock that Ray uh, took to Goddard and had their chief scientist analyze. They scraped the rock clean of all the metal, even though they promised that they wouldn't. And many days later, when Frankel, Dr. Frankel is, is the name, he uh, sent Ray a, a note saying that he should be, he'll be very excited to hear that this zinc uh, alloy uh, material is not so much unusual per se, but it's how it's bound together that would actually zinc and iron, zinc iron alloy. That's how it's bound together that lends itself to being possibly something extraterrestrial or an argument for something that's extraterrestrial. But before Ray could get back with Dr. Frankel, he kind of disappeared, and the Air Force took over and uh, told Ray, "Hey, you know, thanks for bringing us." You know, the sample, it was a lot easier for you to bring it to us than us confiscating it. It was silicon. <laughs> and they, yeah, they're like, it's not, it's not what Dr. Frankel said. It's actually just silicon. And when he told that to Heineck, Heineck was, was pretty upset about it. He says, no, they're lying to you. Uh, I would go with what Dr. Frankel told you. And so fast forward uh, to just uh, what, uh, about maybe a month ago, uh, Ray Stanford got a phone call from a third-party uh, scientist at Goddard. He didn't know anything about the case, didn't know anything about... Uh, Socorro, but he had known Dr. Frankel, and when Frankel's name came up, he told Ray, he says, oh, that's the guy that got sent to the woodshed for invest- woodshed for investigating metal from a UFO. And and Ray said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, he got kind of shut down and moved to another office. He still worked there, but he wasn't allowed to be a public-facing person because of what he was investigating with this UFO that the guy didn't even know anything about. So it was kind of a third-party confirmation that Frankel did get shut down because of what he was doing at that time. And the reason the scientist was unrelated is because Ray does a lot of work with paleontology, and he recently discovered uh, a dinosaur uh, fossil in, in Maryland called a nodosaur, and that's how he's familiar with a lot of these paleontologists and scientists at Goddard. So he's always in communication with them, not to mention his wife worked for 30 years on the Hubble telescope. She was project manager at Hubble. Project manager at Hubble. 
And so he's, he's always in direct connection with people at Goddard, and that's how this uh, scientist came to give him a phone call. But what, what happened is Frankel spoke to uh, Ray Sanford, but he didn't send him any kind of a document or a letter that kind of confirmed this? He said he, was gonna, he said he would be willing to publish it if something unusual, and Ray noted all these down. He actually says he, he, he taped it, but he doesn't... <laughs> He hadn't revealed that yet because of possible problems with that. But um, we keep finding things in his house. He's got a treasure trove of stuff. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. But the the bottom line was that Frankel said it was unusually combined. It would make an excellent coating for a gear because it was non-corrosive. And then when the new guy got a hold of Ray, Ray was writing all this down. It's all in his book. But the new guy said, "No, it was just silicate." And Hayek said, there's no way you can mistake metal for silicate. They're lying to you. Go with what that Dr. Frankel told you originally. That was very unusual. And the rock was scraped, scraped clean. We have the rock. There's some other crystals on it to analyze. but um, There's some kind of melting on the rock. That yeah, I mean, we can when you burn a creosite bush in half by passing over it briefly, you got to be at about 1,500 degrees at least because uh, those things don't burn like that immediately. And it sliced it perfectly in half. So the bottom line is, as we wrap things up on the program, is that the Air Force was unable to identify what Zamora saw. They did not label him as psychologically unbalanced for reporting things from the craft. The Air Force forced him to change the symbol and sign the document with the false symbol on it for their files. They were unable to find any craft that could account for the sightings. Uh, you have found other witnesses who saw similar objects in the area around that time. And uh, we have uh, physical evidence that has been uh, disappeared, physical evidence that disappeared, and that sort of thing. So what you're, you're saying is we have a good case with multiple chains of evidence for leading us toward a very unusual event, something that is unidentified. Yeah, our conclusion was it was a non-human event because if nobody made that craft, nobody admits to it, and they had to answer the people that were asking them, then it was made somewhere else. I, I never jumped to the conclusion that it's ET or interdimensional or whatever, but you know, we even added a clip to our last presentation of a craft that's supposed to you know grab hold of, of asteroids and, and land on other bodies in 2010 that blew up on the landing pad. So if we had something with these capabilities in 64, we certainly wouldn't be testing similar type craft to land on other bo uh, bodies, planetary bodies that blow up on the landing pad with using propellants. So, well, you'll notice I did not say an extraterrestrial craft or a spacecraft. I tried to, to, yeah. to couch it in the, right. yeah. the terms that don't lead to a specific conclusion. But uh, what, we, what we've turned up here, then, is a, is a sighting that isn't quite what we've all been led to believe. It is much more robust than the stories that we've been told. It's not just Lonnie Zamora, but it's other people involved in that. And, and the one thing I wanted to touch on quickly, and I don't have much time left, is the, the, the fellow who Philip Glass talked to that, that you said was deaf. The thing that I, I pointed out on my blog a number of years ago was that the guy said that he walked up there and didn't see anything. And I'm thinking within minutes of this going away, there were police officers there. There were all kinds of people there. Uh, why would he walk up there if there was nothing there to be seen? It just didn't make sense to me. Yeah, if he didn't hear it, he'd have no pre reason to walk, walk in yeah. that area. Why would he walk up there if he didn't hear anything? Or, didn't, or couldn't see anything or nothing that. was going on up there. It didn't make any sense to me. So I was kind of bothered by Philip Class's explanation in that, that respect. Uh, fellas, we're just about out of time. Do you want to talk about your uh, website or what you're going to do in the near future? Yeah, if, uh, if anyone uh, wants to keep up to date um, on the things that we're doing and the cases we're investigating in Virginia, go to www.mufonva.com. We also have, uh, if you're interested in Ray's book, we do have a link there. You can email me, and we can uh, we can get a book out to you. Um, signed book. Uh, it'll be signed. Yeah, it'll be signed to your name or however you want it. About 300 copies left of the only printing ever made. Um, all the other countries that printed it uh, ripped Ray off. Yep. <laughs> we have we we found these in his attic. First edition printing, all original, and it's the last batch. It's the only batch. And, and if you haven't read this book, you, you don't know the case. I'm sure you've read it, but that is a definitive book because 
when Lonnie Zamora was at home with his daughter, and his daughter looked at him and said, what really happened, Dad? He pointed to Ray's book and said, that's the only guy that got it right. Lonnie Zamora said that. Lonnie Zamora said that to his, to his daughter. To his daughter, yeah. Ray wrote the eulogy for Lonnie's uh, funeral to his daughter. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you coming on the program and providing us with additional insights into the Socorro case from 1964, especially, uh, I'm not sure everybody was interested in it, but I was certainly interested in the discussion about the symbol on on the side of the craft and what it really looked like. Next week, we will be back with Kurt Collins. We'll be talking about uh, the Roswell slides once again from the perspective of the guys who decoded the placard that took us to a a different place on that and discussion about that. And he is also one of the experts on the uh, Cash Landrum case from uh, Texas back a a number of years ago. So we'll be exploring that if we can get to it in in the time that we have. But uh, that's what we'll be doing next week. And if you're interested in the Roswell slides, I do a long section about uh, the history of that in my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, which you can find at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com. And take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening.